0: You're listening to the podcast for Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Buy tickets to upcoming live events in San Francisco at InforumSF.org. Want even more Inforum? Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram as InforumSF.
1: Hello, and welcome to today's virtual program with Inform at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Marisa Lagos, correspondent for KQED's California Politics and Government Desk. Today, I'm pleased to be in conversation with Jennifer Steinhauer. She is a Washington, D.C. correspondent for The New York Times. And today, we get to talk about her new book, The First, The Inside Story of the Women Reshaping Congress, which is now available for purchase at a local bookstore. In it, she tracks the rise of the newly elected women of the 2018 House of Representatives as they pursue groundbreaking change and close out their first term on the Hill. For now, let's get started. Thank you so much for joining us, Jennifer.
0: Oh, thank you. I always love being at the Commonwealth Club, even virtually.
1: <laughs> I know. We were supposed to do this in person, uh, but something hop- Something big happened. The pandemic. <laughs> More than one thing, yes. So it's great to be <laughs> here. Well, I kind of want to start with the other big thing, because um, obviously this book is about this, you know, I, I guess, not statistically massive in the sense that they're still what a quarter of Congress, but we we did see this surge of women um, elected in 2018. Most of, almost nearly all of them Democrats, and it strikes me that they are actually playing a really key role in this moment um, as we see the Black Lives Matter protests, really royal America. You know, Ayanna Presley from Boston, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez from New York, Rashida Tlaib. Um, many more. They're all women of color. So to start, because this is the story of the day, can you talk about what you've sort of witnessed in terms of how they're talking about these protests, um, the role they're playing right now um, as leaders in these demonstrations?
0: Well, if you think about their campaigns, um, and I thank you for your question, um, going back into 2018, I'm not going to say that they presaged this particular moment, but they spoke about all that had led to it. And if you think about Ayanna Pressley, who you mentioned from Boston, she wasn't running because she was more liberal against the long-term Democratic incumbent that she unseated. She was running because, as she put it, um, change can't wait. She was looking for new representation um, that looked more like certain aspects of that district that had changed over the years and were more immigrant and less white. Um, I can remember very much talking to her for the book about um, letter writing uh, campaign that was done um, for men in prison to to try and get people on the outside to go out and vote for her. So we're talking about um, a really different set of voters. And these, these issues that these women talked about during the campaign about equity, about health care equity, we have always seen the COVID crisis, uh, great racial inequalities with who's gotten the most sick and who's who's died. Um, they're talking about policing issues and kinds of things. And those, in a sense, sort of went to the wayside when they became legislating in, um, in 2019. And there were other topics that they were engaged in at that time. And so in a sense, they were ahead of the game On where we are now in this moment, and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in particular, not just because she is really, in my view, the titular head of the progressive of the party now that Bernie is exiting the stage, but obviously she's in a district in New York City that was the true epicenter of the COVID crisis in the seminar of New York City um, and obviously a place where there's a lot of the, of the protests now, um, and the interactions with the police. And so she's been speaking out, um, and participating in that obviously as well.
1: Do you see, um, yet, and, and I want to get, you know, I- into a lot of the stuff in the book, but are they putting forth legislation or policy that you think, um, is aimed at really tackling some of the underlying issues? Cause I do think that's sort of the, 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 Ten gazillion dollar question right now is what What's next? Um, and I'm curious if there's things in, you know, in writing yet or being talked about with this class in particular, freshman lawmakers, um, in terms of how to tackle some of the huge inequities we're seeing both play out you know, through the protests more broadly, but also obviously through the COVID crisis? So lots of
0: interesting things. Of course, Congress hasn't really been here, uh, especially in the House, um, and they've had to vote remotely on certain things or vote by proxy. And they've mostly been focused, you know, on relief efforts um, for cities and individuals and unemployment and so forth due to the COVID uh, crisis. But you are starting to hear people talk about legislation. I was really interested to see yesterday, um, and I saw it in his Twitter feed, Justin Amash, the independent from Michigan, former Republican, obviously, who toyed with running against Trump, um, joined with Ayanna Pressley on a police accountability bill. So I think you're going to see these interesting um, left-right alliances that you sometimes see around issues of national security and policing and, and constitutional rights and so forth. Um, and I think that um, Republicans, too, are seeing the pressure. If you look at these country, if you look around the country, we know, yes, we see what's going on in New York City and D.C., but there are protests, as you know, peaceful protests in every city, small town in this country, um, including in red states. So I think they, you know, you have to have, you have to have in divided government um, partners on the other side to really actually get things done. So I think you'll see some of that. But I definitely think that you're going to see in the House itself, even if these are bills that aren't taken up by the Senate, you're going to see them start definitely where these women will have an, in, an imprint um, from their committees uh, on oversight. Um, On policing
1: and other matters. Um, I want to go back in time in just a moment, but before we do, something you wrote kind of strikes me in this context, which is that the increase in women in Congress in 2019 was symbolically important, but that through your reporting, you came to believe that their diversity in age, race, religion, economic standing could actually be more transformative than their gender alone it seems to me like this is the moment where we're seeing that is that fair i think so um
0: first of all as you alluded to in your opening remarks we're not even quite 25% and part party trump's gender um, for sure, in Congress in this divided time, much more than they did, for example, in the 70s, believe it or not. If anyone's watching Mrs. America, you really see how um, Republican and Democrat women came together to support the ERA and a lot of other things we forget about. That's not true now. Definitely people stick with their parties more. Having said that, women do tend to coalesce around certain types of things. When you have a super majority, a you know, much bigger majority, like in the Nevada legislature, you know, which is a slight majority of women, but where I saw impact more, whether it was around legislation or um, um, the kinds of issues that people were talking about in committees, I go back to Ayanna Pressley on oversight, talking about childhood trauma. Which obviously is going to be incredibly relevant in this moment, both from kids being out of school, you know, with COVID and what's going on in the streets and Black Lives Matter and so forth. That's just not the kind of thing that you would have had in a Congress, you know, even two years before a Black maternal health caucus, those kind of things. Um, even, you know, it was obviously extremely controversial and painful for this class um, to have ha- what happened around the um, issues of Israel and what some viewed as anti Semitism with Ilhan Omar from Minnesota. But I, what I submit is that those conversations wouldn't have happened at all because there was no space in Congress to question the foreign policy relationship between the U.S. and Israel with Democrats or Republicans, which also opened up another space for black Democrats to say, how come we're not talking about police brutality? You know, we're worried about um you know, anti-Semitism and you've never been worried about those issues. So that was, these are people who've been in Congress for many years. So a lot of these conversations were fermented, not because they were women, but because you saw people from so many different groups that had been underrepresented or, you know, in the case of Native American women before this, before 2019, not represented at all.
1: And they also came from like uh, just such different backgrounds, right. Than a lot of the people, men or women who have been in Congress, um, but I want to get up to that. But I actually want to go back because I think you really set the stage in this book about the history of women in Congress, um, starting with Jeanette Rankin, right? Uh, 1970, 1917, a suffragist. Um, how did she manage to get elected before women even had the vote? Like, talk about that and how she was received. Yeah, I mean, it was really,
0: it was very interesting. I mean, she really, um, she was. Running as a suffragist, and that was one of her issues. And later became much about um, about being a pacifist. She's the only person who voted against World War One and World War Two. And the second vote, I can promise you, was not popular. She was the only person to do that, and she was chased out to the to a telephone booth in the cloakroom after that vote. Um, so she was really uh, quite something. Um, but you know, she did what a lot of women do, which is. When they are running on, even as a woman uh, running on that particular issue, she really broadened it out to um, workers' rights issues and talking about children and things like that uh, in ways that that people in her community could relate to um, rural issues, which matter to them um, from her state in Montana. So. She was able to uh, she was able to be very appealing. Um, and what's interesting about women from that time is a lot of them who were elected. First of all, not Jeanette Rankin, but many took you know their husbands, their dead husbands' seats, and so they were seen uh, more as a curiosity than a threat. That changed a lot in the seventies.
1: Yeah, I want to get to that. I think. Um... You, you talk about the, the, the sort of parallels between that where you had agitators and incrementalists coming in um, around that time. And I mean, I've been really interested in recent years about um, the sort of rise of Shirley Chisholm on the left as like this, you know, icon, um, which I think for some people she was, but in some ways she kind of left office like not that well known. Um, tell us about her and kind of why you think I don't know her. It's almost like her story has been revived in some ways in recent years.
0: Yeah, it really has. And I was really interested to see a lot of the new women um, were super interested in Shirley Chisholm. And I, you point out, it, it's absolutely right. I mean, she's a big, obviously, it's this big piece in, in Mrs. America. There's been parks now in, in New York, um, statues and things are erected to to um, to recognize fight Shirley Chisholm. Um, you know, um I think, first of all, with regards to that specifically, people finding people running for office now finding her history important because she sort of was uh, intersectional before that was a word. You know, she she talked a lot about the fact she always said um, frequently that she thought being a woman was more difficult for her than being um, a black American in Washington and in her political career. And in fact, when she won um, her Democratic primary in Brooklyn, the man she was running against made an outright case that a woman shouldn't be, uh, shouldn't hold that seat, women shouldn't be in politics. Um, but she really, uh, she really, she, represented so many ways that people can succeed, um, which is to being an agitator and being a street fighter and really kind of, you know, being for the people and that that being her and and empowering black women and giving a lot of speeches about that. But at the same time, you know, one of the things that hurt her with her party a lot is she did work across the aisle. She went to visit George Wallace in the hospital after he was shot. He said she was his most formidable competitor for the White House. So she had a very complicated um, um, alliances and ways of working I think she left kind of, as many people do, a little bit defeated by Washington and was sort of forgotten for many years. But now of that group of women, Bella Abzug um, and so forth from that era, um, Pat Schroeder, I do think that she's the person that young people have the most awareness of and that they see parallels with current uh, lawmakers.
1: And that was a time right when, like you said, like the, the sort of first class were which were largely widows or had sort of wealthier patrons, they were white, they were middle class educated. Um, they didn't necessarily have the same pushback that you saw in the sixties and seventies, um, things like the Equal Rights Amendment. Can you talk about like why that was? I mean, it, it seems like it's partly who these people were, but also what they came to Washington um, to accomplish compared to the earlier women who were maybe didn't have that grand plan when they ended up there.
0: Yeah, even though some of them did, you know, um, certainly Lily Boggs made, you know, significant changes um, in that more incremental way. I mean, It was interesting. I would have thought they would have faced faced a lot more abject sexism. And when I dug into that, what I realized is by being um, by inheriting their husbands' seats, and some of them even said, you know, would go by, you know, Mrs. John Smith. I mean, they were not necessarily feminists at all. Um, They were seen as extensions of their husbands and very non-threatening. They knew them from the campaigns. Perhaps they'd worked in their district office. Um, and then they were just there to kind of carry out uh, his agenda uh, until you know a man could finally fill that seat, although often they would run on their own accord. And when? Um, but when women started to really run on their own, um, at the time that women were entering the workplace in larger numbers, you know, during the, the feminist movement, that became much more threatening uh, to men. men. Women were consciously making their own choice intentionally to join uh, and to participate fully and they wanted power on committees and so forth. And that was something that a lot of men could not brook. And of course, uh, you you mentioned the Me Too movement. I mean, talk about a place more, um, just gross sexism range. That was certainly the cloakrooms of both parties. Um, we know that, you know, until very recently, uh, the, the pool in the gym that senators used couldn't even be used by women. And when they went to figure out why it was because men, Senator, male senators were swimming naked. Um, and that was, you know, a rule until in the last decade <laughs> that got changed. So, um, that, that was, uh, a, a cross for those women to bear, but they just started running in so many numbers and they started to have enough where they could have um, a women's caucus and start to really work together outside of the committee system to really try to affect change. You know, I personally, I don't want to be a spoiler. We all know what happened with the Equal Rights Amendment, but uh, the very last um, episode of Mrs. America, uh, it's, uh, I think the text says, women have never, as a political movement, ever had as much power again as they had in the 70s. And I had to stop and really think about that and think, wow, um, that's probably actually true. And these women in Congress were a huge piece of that.
1: Well, you mentioned something else that um, I've certainly talked to Congresswomen about in the past, but the the sort of physical manifestation of the sexism of D.C. in the building itself. Um, Like you mentioned the gym. I mean, I think women had like some tiny like basement space for until like you said, recently um, I know um, Senator Kirsten Gillibrand has spoken a lot about her kind of fight to bring her kids in onto the um, even into the cloak rooms outside of the Senate. The dress code is still an issue. Talk about like how male senators have sort of used these physical things to 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 continue uh, I don't know, it seems like a very patriarchal system in Congress.
0: yeah, I mean, you know, I've lived a lot of places. Washington's definitely remains the most stodgy and formal, even though things are changing here outside of the federal government and official Washington. It's still a place that um, you know, until a few years ago women were including members of Congress were not allowed to be sleeveless on the floor of the house. Um, now, it's pretty cold in there, but as you know, when you're moving in and out of office buildings all day on the giant campus, you've maybe been in August uh, in Washington, D.C., that was pretty oppressive <laughs> to a lot of, of people. And men still have to wear ties and dress a certain way um, in, in and around the area of the house floor. Women didn't even have a bathroom outside the house floor until 2011. Um, that was actually John Boehner who kind of broke through some walls of the appropriations committee to give them one. They had to walk down the hall. Um, the Senate, same women had a bathroom near the floor, but it had only two stalls, which was a little bit okay because they used to cut deals in line while they were waiting for the bathroom. So they kind of had their space there, you know, uh, their women's club, if you will, but that's finally expanded too. women. And it was only until, um, Senator Sinema from Arizona, uh, was sworn in, and you know she only wore sleeveless dresses, and they kind of quietly allowed senator, female senators, to most have not, them not chosen to do that, but she's quietly been permitted to do that, even though staff members are still not. So it's it's you know when I walk around, look, the history of our country is um, a story that is told when you walk around and look at the artwork and the statues and the paintings um, of of important uh, members of Congress and Americans in those halls it's, it's not predominantly, uh, female. <laughs> it's not even, uh, quite a lot of it female and you, and you,
1: that's just very palpable in that space. Yeah. Not just, and not just men, white men, right? I mean, but this isn't, um, and then I want to move on to 2018, but it's, what what's interesting here, like you just mentioned Boehner, it's not like it's been a partisan thing, which I think maybe people outside of Washington might assume. Um, I think you say Ted Kennedy might have been one of the senators who liked to swim nude. And <laughs> like, it's, it's, there's been actually some progress, I think, maybe more progress in recent years under um some of the male speakers and, and, and Republicans. So, it is, I mean, do you feel, has it taken on more of a partisan tone at all lately, or is it very much sort of in the, um, I don't know, Congress is almost like its own reality in a lot of ways, right? It's
0: complicated because it's gotten much, much harder for Republican women to get elected. You know, for years and years and years, there were just a few number of women in Congress, and sometimes it was a Republican, sometimes it was a Democrat, and one, you know, one of both. And it wasn't, you know, until the '70s when you started to really see that um, divide. And you still had a lot of re- Republican women winning. Um, in the last ten years, it's been just this precipitous drop, and not just in Congress, by the way, writ large. Um, as the party's gotten more and more conservative, it's gotten more and more difficult for women in the Republican Party to win primaries. If they can't get through primaries, obviously, they're not winning general elections. Um, and I talked to, uh, there's a Republican chapter in my book, actually, that, that talks about this. And I talked to a woman who ran in North Carolina in a special election and lost her primary this year, uh, a very con- very conservative um, Republican uh, pro-life pediatrician, which is basically kind of unheard of. And she said she wished she had more male validators out with her because she thought that was going to help her with women and men over a certain age. A lot of the stuff we see, by the way, I want to point out, we think about party and we think about um, race and class. Those are obviously always factors. But generation, we should never dismiss that. A lot of the things we're seeing happening now, different views on things. Um, we see the kids kind of leading these protests and so forth. A lot of this stuff is generational. Um, that we write off to other things. So, um, I, th- th- so in terms of having electoral power, I think Republican women have lost a lot of ground. Once they're in halls of Congress, which you're asking me about, I think they're pretty, um, they hold equal power, generally speaking, within their parties. Um, I mean, Liz Cheney is, you know, you see, uh, the minority leader, you see Kevin uh, McCarthy from California in that role. Liz Cheney's running that stuff. Um, And if they ever come back to have power, I have no doubt she would. They would be. She would be their speaker. So once they're there, I think it's it's kind of equal. And in terms of uh, uh, sex uh, offenders and sexual harassment, that's been pretty even too with the parties, as we know, and we (laughs) see that in the private sector too.
1: Yeah. Well, let's talk about 2018, and I want to start with AOC because that um, was kind of the kickoff of that of that cycle because it was in the primary that she beat Joe Crowley. Um, Sitting here in San Francisco. It is surprising, almost shocking to me to this day that not just Joe Crowley, but that Nancy Pelosi didn't see that coming. I mean, she is so good usually at having her finger on the pulse of things. So can you talk about like what, how AOC approached that campaign and why you think she was successful in unseating um, somebody who was so powerful within her own party?
0: Yeah, I would. There's a lot of mythology around that race, too. I also think uh, i just love to mention that the night that she won, um, I learned about it on my phone in the green room at the Commonwealth Club because we were doing um, an election panel there with a bunch of my colleagues, Maggie Haberman and Jonathan Martin and others. And we looked at our phone and said, whoa, what, what we were taking? What just happened? What happened? And yeah. boy, we went out there and. Um, and everybody in San Francisco knew about a house race um, in uh, in Brooklyn, because in Queens, because that's San Francisco, right? People knew knew her name. Um, she, uh, first of all, Joe Crowley, a couple things. Everyone says it took everyone by surprise except for her. It's kind of the other way around. I, her, I spoke to her team extensively for the book, and they all said they had no idea what was going to happen that night until it happened. Um, you know, it's not great polling for a, a house race like that. Conversely, I think that former Congressman Crowley did see um, some some flares coming and he didn't want to inform Nancy Pelosi. You know, she can't keep her hand in the midterm, busy midterm election in every little race. That's not a race she would have even thought anything about. Some, you know, unheard of challenger to this big time incumbent. Um, He didn't want to send those red flares because he didn't want to. Assuming he could win, he didn't want to appear vulnerable and he didn't want to go back to his colleagues, you know, victorious. And have them know how much he actually had to sweat it. And he, as you may remember, he didn't even show up to their first debate. He sent um, a surrogate. Bad look. So yeah. you know, and she and she did the shoe leather thing, and she went. Every, this is what all these women did: door to door, just trying to get every single vote. Running um, aggressively against Trump, which he really wasn't. He was running, you know, on sort of some basic, hard, you know, but bread and butter Democratic issues. Again, reaching to uh, out to different kinds of voters. But here's the thing. That everyone needs to understand about AOC. She won that race principally with the vote of a lot of white people in Queens, you know, who had like fled Manhattan, you know, and started um, moving out into other boroughs, Um, very progressive, again, younger right? Generationally interested in a candidate like that. Joe Crowley actually um, held his own and won most of those minority neighborhoods where he had been long known. So she was really appealing again to a more progressive um, wing of the party that wants to push the party, you know, uh, the the Bernie way and not the Joe Crowley, Nancy Pelosi, you know, Joe Biden way. And so that was the dynamic of that race. And um, I really do authentically believe she was as surprised as everybody else that night.
1: What does that tell you, that that was was her base, at least in this Democratic primary? Um, Because I think that the the conversation that's been roiling the Democratic Party throughout its primary was like sort of the either or. Do we go after those white, non-educated voters, you know, non-college educated voters that Trump you know, one, um, or do we try to turn out a bigger, multiracial, younger coalition? Um, I think a lot of people I've talked to, and I'm sure you have, think it's it shouldn't be an either or, it should be a, a, an and. But like, is that is that a sign of, I don't know, weakness for AOC? Has she brought along that part of her constituency? Like, how, how do you see that right now?
0: I mean, I always kind of felt that when they arrived in Washington, there was an immediate conflict that um, speaks to what you were just talking about in terms of legislating because you had some progressive um, folks mostly women who won safe democratic seats and were very much the voice of and an aggressive voice for moving the party to the left right and the republicans had gone through this over the past 10 years and that was the democrats turn and there were a lot of policy issues and i always like to point out too you know people have to have perspective on that um, because for example in the in the space of health care the idea of um, single payer, which has now become considered the moderate position for Democrats, was considered left wing lunacy. that people lost their seats over in the time that I've been in Washington. So people kind of forget, you know, how le- much the party has moved to the left naturally among all of them, right? In ways that, that the far, the people on the farther left, it, it, they're, they're they're moving things to the needle so much farther. People kind of lose that perspective and they forget that. Um, having said that there were a lot of so-called moderate Democrats who won seats from Republicans. And their point of view was, hey, we're the reason that the Democrats took back the House, because we won Republican seats, and we have to vote consistent with our district. We don't want to lose, and we have we don't have enough of those. Great, we love all these progressive voters that you want to attract. We don't have enough of them. We don't even have enough Democrats. We have to speak to persuadable um, independents, and in some cases, obviously, Republican, particularly suburban Republican women who'd been disenchanted. So that was the conflict. Um, over bills and and votes and um, people were upset with AOC in the beginning because you may remember she threatened primary challenges against people even in her her own um, delegation. That didn't go over very well. I noticed she didn't do that too much um, in 2020, which I thought was interesting because that was a choice she had to make. Mm -hmm. Um, And she went a different way with that. Um, But I always felt and then we saw in the, in the race for the White House, we saw where, um, where we ended up uh, in the beginning with Bernie having all that momentum. And then when you started to get out of those more pro- places where younger progressive voters were dominating and you saw the base of the Democratic Party, it went very quickly the other way. And we saw where the heart, you know, to make the Joe Crowley analogy, you see where the heart and soul of those base Democratic voters in the majority for now really lies but we are now watching right in front of us as we speak in real time. What I always thought would be the future of the party is probably going to be more uh, in more some mold of where AOC is pushing it. Right. As against younger voters. First of all, they have to actually go and vote. You know, that's been a problem, obviously. Um, and as more of them. uh kind of cue to that, those, those policy beliefs, but it's a, it's a process, it's a trajectory. And she probably is, you know, sitting somewhere in the middle of it right now.
1: Yeah. I mean, she arrived in Washington as the whole class did, um, with high hopes and and a lot of ideas in their heads. And I think, um, you kind of detailed, you know, some of, before they even got sworn in the, the flap over potentially challenging, um, Congressman Jeffries and others but then there was other things too right the rollout of the new green new deal didn't go as planned um a lot of the legislation so, you know some of it didn't even make it out of the house or got um sort of marred by republican amendments like how effective do you think she's been in dc versus her role as the as the sort of head of the progressive movement is it um is is her power in some ways more focused in in the power of the bully pulpit than it is in actually legislating, do you think?
0: Yeah, no, I thank you for that question, because I think it's something that confuses people a lot. They see AOC on TV, they go on her Instagram with her gajillion followers, and they watch her put together IKEA furniture, and they know that they're not doing that for any other member of Congress, and they never have before, perhaps even been interested in members of Congress. Um, And so um, they feel like this is the most powerful person in Washington. Well power in Washington has accrued very differently. It's about, it's this place that very much values seniority. Half the people in this town are in the positions they're in just by dint of hanging around long enough. You know, seniority is everything in an institution like Congress. You also have to build coalitions. Sometimes it's bipartisan coalitions when you want to do really big things, but even when you want to, um, you know, have bills pass the house that may not be considered by the Senate in divided government or by Republican president, getting them through the house is an accomplishment. It does set the benchmark for your party, but you need a coalition within your party. Um, and you can't do that by alienating people and telling them that you're going to primary them and all their friends. It's like any other workplace, you know, uh, these are (laughs) personal relationships, (laughs) you know? And so a lot of it is. So, um, I think she learned from that, uh, new green deal. Good example, um, came in, uh, before they were even sworn in joined young protesters outside Nancy Pelosi's office to have a climate, a special climate committee. Um, so they said, okay, and they formed the committee and then she refused to be part of it, uh, because she didn't think it was going to have any teeth, which was true. They didn't do anything, but that was a real insult to Nancy Pelosi. She was the speaker of the house and she asked you to be on this thing where she thought you would lend an important voice, um, was not particularly consultative, um, on the Green New Deal, which was something that a lot of her colleagues were not ready for, again, you know, um, the cap and trade bill, uh, you know, 10 years prior cost a lot of Democrats their, their seats. They were very skittish about it. Um, at the same time, that Green New Deal thing, which went nowhere in the Congress, had a huge political impact because everybody running for president had to weigh in on it, as you recall. Um, they felt pressured to yay or nay on that, just as they did for Medicare for All. So I do think... Uh, She does have a lot of political power and she does have a lot of influence on the party. But that definitely does not translate in a very diverse group of Democrats um, to having legislative power at this juncture. You're listening to a podcast of Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Support our podcast and find out about upcoming live events in San Francisco at InforumSF.org.
1: Do you think... I mean, how, how would you characterize her relationship with Pelosi? Like, do you think um, is she, you know, I mean, there's always factions in Congress, but has has she done a better job over the ensuing, you know, year and a half of 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 understanding the culture there and, and, and building some of those ridges?
0: I think so. I mean, she got rid of a lot of her staff that were kind of um, instigating a lot with other members, um, which Pelosi didn't like. You know, I think Pelosi's frustration, and I'm not validating it; I'm just explaining it. I think Pelosi's frustration with AOC and some of the, and, and probably Ilhan Omar in particular, a little bit maybe Rashida Tlaib. I put Ayanna Pressley in her own category. She's a little separate and apart from them, even though she's officially in the squad and they do stuff together. She's a longtime city hall, mem- uh, you know, person, uh, and rather city council person in Boston. More pragmatic, doesn't always vote with them. I think Pelosi's frustration was she saw their political power. She saw, she knows where things were headed. She almost, you know, didn't get to be speaker. She wasn't dumb, dumb, but she wanted them to use that for good within their caucus on the Hill instead of king tangling with her colleagues. And I think that, and, and kind of in her mind that was playing into their Republican adversaries. And so I think that was difficult for her. Um, but and I and she's also a seniority minded person, so I don't think she cared about you know the Green New Deal and those things. She kind of mocked it, as you recall. Um, but again, that's just a huge generational divide. Nancy Pelosi, um, even those who opposed her and said they weren't going to vote for her for Speaker, and some of them didn't, most of them did, have had to acknowledge that she's been this great foil for them against the president. Right? No one seems to get under his skin the way she does. At the same time. Make no mistake, everyone understands that she is she has one foot in the past in, in in a sense anyway. And you know, these younger men and women, but particularly women, are
1: are really the future of the party. She understands that. I was I did find it really funny, and and then I want to move on to some other members, but you have this line in there about how Republicans are obsessed with uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez tweeting negatively and both begging their colleagues to introduce them to her. Um, So there's some of that star power, even within Congress, for some of these members.
0: Yeah, I mean, you see them on TV, and then here they are, you know? I mean, (laughs) people feel that way. I can remember the first time I walked into – the Capitol, the U S Capitol. And I almost literally rammed into Olympia snow. It's like, Oh, I've been seeing this woman on TV and and here she is, you know, I mean, there is a larger than life quality to them. And especially in those hallways, of course, she was feeling that seeing John Lewis, right? I mean, she couldn't believe she was seeing him in the flesh. So there was a lot of that going
1: on. Yeah. My, I had a Romney moment last fall like that where you're like, Oh, he is tall. Um. (laughs) Very cheerful. Very cheerful. So, um, Another member I want to talk about, she is from California and has had her own viral moments, but is a very different person than AFC, is Katie Porter. Um she, of course, beat Mimi Walters down in Orange County. This was one of um the districts that Democrats flipped in California in 2018. Um, you know, she comes from a consumer background. She uh was a, a student of Elizabeth Warren's. She has really made her mark nationally by these like viral videos of her grilling, you know the, the, uh, Chase CEO, Jamie Dimon, um, going after, you know, members of, of, of Congress or of the administration. Um, but, but she's in an interesting spot. I feel like she kind of sits between the more moderate, um, members that we'll get to in a second who really pushed impeachment over the edge who came from national security backgrounds, those ones that won Republican districts, and the squad and, and, and the really left. I mean, it, it seems like she inhabits an interesting space. And I'm curious, like how you think she's approached that, given that she is still in a relatively purple district. Um, but she's coming from such a like, consumer progressive background.
0: Yeah, I've been actually surprised. Again, anybody who won a Republican district, I didn't really expect them to be particularly progressive. I would say um, she's definitely an example of someone who has decided to lean that way in a a formerly Republican seat, which tells me that she must feel, and she certainly does raise a lot of money. That she's that that um, Orange County isn't, you know, the Orange County that we all knew and and understood it to be. Um, And uh, in fact, you mentioned impeachment. She came was one of the people who came out on the early side, Um, again, former law professor. Uh, I think that she's um, I've been spent time with her in her district. And she connects the people pretty well there. And I think she really makes an effort. Again, I was sitting in her car one day and she was talking to constituents and a lot of them were Republicans and they appreciated her reaching out to them. So, you know, she's trying to make those personal connections in the district. That's what you have to do, especially when you are in a purple or even red district and you're a Democrat or, you know, from the opposite party of your district. And at first I thought, geez, you know, she's kind of a lot more progressive than most people I see coming from Republican districts. And I wondered about that, but she's always, she's stuck with it and perhaps even gotten more. So I think that she has become sort of, as you've alluded to a bit of a liberal icon in these, those viral moments that you see on the now this videos, you know, it's, it's AOC it's, it's her. Um, But I think you're right. She's not, she, of course she is in agreement with most of those, uh, the vast majority of those left positions. And in fact, there's a scene in my book where she gets in a fight with Abigail Spamberger on the floor about a border bill and said, why, why don't you go join the Republican party? I mean, that was that really surprised quite, me. Yeah. That seems,
1: I mean, she's a plain spoken person. Um, she's really funny too, but I was surprised that she was, um, that confrontational with another Democrat.
0: I've seen, um, Katie Porter to me is a very interesting character. And I always like to be really careful about how we talk about women in this way, but I, she can be very intense. Uh, I've seen her be really intense with staff. She's been intense with me uh, when I'm, when she's like thought I've been hanging around a little bit too much, but then there's also this thing where she, you can tell she wants to be liked. I mean, there's a real push and pull with her. I think, Um, I think she's frankly speaking, pretty stressed out. She's got three kids. She's a single mom. She lives, not only does she live across the country, from Washington um, with three hour time difference, but she lives someplace where you can't even go airport to airport. So I think that she has a lot of just like personal stress in her life. And you talked about people, you know, you alluded to this earlier about people coming from different backgrounds. And, you know, as a single mom, when she was running, she told people, you know, I don't know, Congress isn't built for people like me. Um, So, you know, not a wealthy woman, uh, Congress is always full, of lots of wealthy people. And again, a single mom dealing with that. So I think that she's got a lot of, um, competing things going on and I, I'm, I'm not always sure that she loves being here, that she loves this job, but, um, but she's quite effective.
1: Well, she's also, um, I mean, you talk about her being a mom. She also, um, I don't know that she wanted to talk about it, but has embraced her own experience with domestic violence, with her children's father talking about that. Ayanna Presley has been speaking out about her experience of being raped and sexually abused as a child. It strikes me that these women, and we, we kind of talked about this a little at the top, but are just more willing to bring their personal experiences with them. Um, and I don't know, I've thought about this personally, like I feel like my generation you know, has this this different opportunity that we, we, you know, we're parents too, and we need to bring that to the table because previous generations of women kind of had to like shove their kids aside and pretend like they didn't exist. So can you talk about that? And like, has that upset the sort of norms of Congress to be so personal, not just in their campaigning, but when they're talking on the floor of the house, they're talking about these things in a manner that's not super clinical.
0: So with regards to that, you know, I'll take you back to seeing the book where Patty Murray, who won in 1992, told me that the first time she went out to the Senate floor on her first, I think, first piece of legislation, it was a health care bill.
1: And that was the year of the woman, right? Correct.
0: And she was talking about a constituent who was choosing between, I think it was about maybe a family leave issue, between going to work and caring for her son with leukemia. And she came off the floor and a male senator said to her, we don't talk about personal stuff on the floor. You know, we use graphs and pie charts and things. It wasn't even her story. It wasn't even her story, and she couldn't even believe it. And now everyone does that, you know. So that's breaking the norms and ways of how we talk about politics. and Everybody understands that you have to personalize politics for people. Um, when you talk about being able to talk about your kids or your domestic violence or your history with poverty or your current financial circumstances, I, to me, I see that as an extension of or inherent to off, the kind of authenticity mo- moment that we have in politics and you know quite frankly some of Donald Trump's fans that's what they say about him right he, yeah. he says it real you know he keeps it real he talks real he says what he really thinks um I think that that people appreciate that that they that the person that they see at home is the person that they're going to see in Washington that, that that the person is not trying to hide who they are and they can judge them on on those merits as well as their policy positions. And that's just kind of where we are politically in the country. I think in, on, on both sides of the aisle, um, people want to feel personally connected to and know the stories of and believe in and believe they're seeing the real person that they're considering voting for.
1: Um, I feel like we would be remiss not mentioning one person who maybe got... I mean, I don't even know how to phrase that, but but Katie Hill, who um, really came into office. I mean, won this very difficult district in northern Los Angeles County, southern uh, Ventura County, um, beat the Republican incumbent Steve Knight there. Um, And really, I think more so than other freshmen, was embraced by Pelosi. I mean, she brought her to the table on a lot of things. She seemed to be... Rising as a leader, um, and then in October was taken down, um, by what, what she says is revenge porn essentially, um, sort of strange situation with her husband and a, a threesome. And, um, it, but you mentioned in the book like the irony of her having to sort of exit stage left so quickly after this when there are still men in Congress who have been accused um, of things. Of course, our president has been accused of some pretty terrible things. Why? Tell, talk about how that played out on the hill, and like why you think she decided not to stay and fight. Um, and and Pelosi, it seemed, really wanted her to to get going.
0: Yeah, I mean, um, it was an interesting time, especially after you know Congress had just passed all this Me Too legislation, and she was sort of the first person ensnared in it, and it definitely was a time when some, many, I don't know, people in this country first heard the word thruple. So uh, it was definitely an, an, a, a, an unusual situation, even in the context of sex scandals of we've seen a thousand times on the Hill. Um, so... She was a pet of Pelosi's, she had been elected by her peers as a leader for the freshman class, did have a seat at the table, and Pelosi often picks one person to like be totally into and she was definitely that person, and in the beginning showed support for her, and somewhere along the line decided that she didn't have that anymore, and they definitely seemed to be like, go away, that's, that's, all right, never mind. I think, as I've always heard it, um, that Katie Hill really just saw that there was going to be this drip, drip, drip of videos and attacks, and she didn't want to go through that and put herself through that. And she recounted that in a New York Times op-ed, how she, in fact, had become suicidal at that point. Um, But I will say this, and this is not always a popular thing to say when people ask me about this, and they ask me about it a lot – I will say that, um, first of all, there have been some men certainly run out of Congress. I mean, in Mitch McConnell, believe it or not, went after Bob Packwood big time. John Boehner used to run people out. So it isn't it completely bifurcated that way. Okay. But with regards to Katie Hill, taking out the, the the specifics of the complaint and how it goes vis-a-vis men, I think probably what happened for Pelosi and others— is that it called into question something that people want from you, even when you've been authentically cool as young millennial, your videos are you rock climbing, you have goats in your yard. But when you get to Congress, they want you to have good judgment and they want to feel that, you know, at the long end of the day, um, when these incredibly momentous decisions are being made you know, by you as a, as a body, that you're a person who has judgment. And I think that what happened in that situation is that there may be a sense that that it was lacking in some of her decisions. And so I tend to think of it more as that than sometimes the specifics of what would actually happened.
1: Right. In the context, I think of the fact that impeachment hearings were underway. And I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot that's being juggled outside of just one individual person in those types of cases. Um cool. Well, we're going to go to some audience questions uh, soon, but I do, um, and I might come back to some of this, but I want to look forward and ask you broadly, um, how things look for this class understanding they have very, varied districts. Um, and in particular, these moderates that we've alluded to the, the span burgers and, 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 um, commercial and Mikey, I'm forgetting Cheryl. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Like, and so they, um, if folks don't remember are the ones that, uh, authored that op-ed that really, um, I would say tipped the scale towards impeachment saying after the Ukraine, um, things came to light that, that they felt like it was necessary. And it was a surprise because they had all been very cautious about that issue. Um, I, do you feel like most of them are in a good position to defend their seats? I mean, how is 2020 shaping up? Do we have any sense because the world is insane and time is a flat circle? <laughs> and who knows where we'll be by November? Yeah. I mean, most of would say that, but
0: we always talk about the top of the ticket in the presidential years, but this year it's everything. This is a referendum on Donald Trump. Um, the last four years, the last four months. And, um, you know, we don't have a big history, recent history in this country of ticket splitting. Um, it does happen, obviously. But I think that um, in most districts, uh, which which way goes Donald Trump? There'll be some D- Trump districts that some of these Democrats who've made inroads will hold on to. Some will lose their seats. Probably Democrats will pick up some seats in a few places, too. I know they're looking very greedily at Texas, for example, but um, I think most of it's just going to be driven by the top of the ticket.
1: Jennifer asked, what role are those more moderate Democrats um, playing? Like, how have they sort of made their mark and, and, and are they continuing to in Congress? Yeah, I
0: mean, they kind of keep their head down and do their legislation on health care and national security and do their committee issues when it comes to um, their own reelection they tend to be very issues focused, um, whether it's drug prices and now it's completely COVID response, especially in the very hard hit districts. And they try really hard not to yoke themselves too much. The conversation about um, Trump, it's a little different now, I would think, but a lot of times that just wasn't a winning message for them. So they're very focused on, um, again, law laws and committee hearings within their areas of jurisdiction and expertise. And I have to say one thing about this class is they are um, have these incredible professional backgrounds, very diverse, and they know their stuff, and so it really it really shows.
1: Yeah, I mean, I know you're doing a lot um, more reporting in that in that vein. Given what we saw this week with the protest and and the sort of question over the military involvement in quelling protests, I mean, is that something you're hearing any of these folks talk, speak up about because of their national security inter- uh, experience? Oh, yes,
0: definitely. I mean, you have a lot of women here who are um, who are veterans, you know, military veterans and people who worked to the national security space and, and the CIA and the DOD and so forth. So I think you're going to be hearing a lot about that.
1: We have a question from Julie Miller asking, how do we address intersectionality without seeming to discuss issues such as racism, anti-Semitism in competition with women's issues? I, I think she's asking, is it an either or for women in Congress? Um, I mean, that makes me think of you know, well, really a lot of that class. I know on the question of anti-Semitism, Ilhan Omar has gotten a lot of blowback, but um, I think from her perspective, she's also been standing up for folks that haven't been represented in Congress historically.
0: I think that's right. I mean, I think, again, with the diversity issue, I think that's the kind of stuff that these women have been more focused on. Um, What's interesting to me about... The feminism question. First of all, when you frame it around Donald Trump, right? They're talking about him. Some of the stuff you alluded to earlier. Um, you know, there's so many things for them to address, but some of it does obviously have to do with, with his, with his, you know, alleged treatment of women. But I think what's interesting about these women—that's a little different um, than than sometimes has happened historically—is they truly, really do lift each other up. Um, The squad does that for each other. These national security women, they knew each other during the campaign. They campaigned together um, and they do a lot of work together. And they just, even within the context of other veterans and freshman veterans, they are a tight group overall. Even these women have this subset, this, 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 you know, their own text group. They are just, um, I think that they express their feminism through uh, really supporting each other and being very uh, pro other women in a very authentic way.
1: Jack DeWeese writes, young people are often accused of not voting. I'll say it's not an accusation. I think it's reality. Um, <laughs> but um, he wants to know if you think this new cohort will help change that Um it will, it will encourage more people to participate.
0: Um, I think more people are participating in the political process. I think more people are participating politically. We see that on the streets all over our country. For some reason, that has not been translating into voting as much. Um, that is... It's interesting because that has been a message, whether it's been a message of Barack Obama, it's been a message I've seen um, even in Atlanta, you know, uh, like people from the um, rap community talking about voting, talking about voting for, I mean, you saw um, vote talking about voting for DAs even. Um, so I think that, that, that people are trying to encourage that from all levels, and it'll be, this will be the test of whether that actually trickles down because in a lot of ways there's some pushback to that too. You know, hey, I can't vote out the cop who... Who killed, um, you know, uh, my my brother? Who's killing? Who's, who's who's been serially abusive to people? We can't vote out police. So to be politically active means to be having street action. So sometimes people do um, almost make a choice um, and, and look at it in this bifurcated way instead of really looking at this as sort of dual actions. So we'll see in 2020. We'll see. It's, it's historically been really tough uh, to get young people to vote.
1: Yeah, well, and in that regard too, it's like we spend so much time talking about Trump and Congress, but the truth is, like, who controls police departments? It's mayors and police chiefs. I mean, there, are there's a lot of layers to that. Um, yeah, it would be fascinating to see if, um, you know, how much down ticket sort of campaigning some of these high profile folks do in those cases. Well,
0: look, you have a mayor Ferguson now, uh, uh, just the other night, uh, um, right. uh, African American woman. So you know, voting does make a difference in these situations. It truly does.
1: And you guys, I think in D.C., had a pretty progressive slate of uh, city council folks, right?
0: Yes, I, I confess with embarrassment I don't pay as much attention to D.C. local <laughs> politics beyond the mayor because she's you know, always fighting with the federal government, but you are correct.
1: <laughs> I saw it on Twitter. It must be true. Um, <laughs> Lynn Cameron asks, do you think that the rise of these women, specifically AOC, is a direct response to 2016, or was it part of a growing trend before Trump? The, uh, women running for office. I mean, certainly, or, or or well, their success. I think in running for office, and I think I think, she, I think uh, Lynn means specifically in terms of the more progressive women.
0: I mean, women came out to run, um, and it's interesting, by the way. Uh, Republican women looked at that and said, "Well, we don't agree with any of their policy positions." But they're showing us that women can win, and women are Republican women are starting to win some primaries in this cycle. It's really interesting. I meant to catch up on that today. Um, they are doing better. I think you'll see more of them. But I think, I mean, look from the minute of the Women's March, which is where a lot of people decided to run, or shortly thereafter, there's no question that the presidency of Donald Trump, and it wasn't just around. Um, The perception of him um, as being terrible for women. A lot of these women who ran, it was because they have their deep concerns about our national security and intelligence apparatus. You know, there were a lot of different issues around Donald Trump that um, inspired women to run healthcare. You know, a lot of people were very, were running more against Republicans in Congress in their um, failed attempts to unravel the Affordable Care Act. So, um, but there's no question that he was an inspiration for a lot of people.
1: I think... Biden has promised to pick a woman as a VP, although sometimes it feels like that's people around him said it, but we are expecting that Joe Biden will pick a woman. Um, I know reporters love making uh, guesses at this, but, but I, I do want to know if you think um, anyone we've been talking about, um, I mean, we, I guess there's. Kamala Harris is, seems to be at the top of the list. She was not. She was part of the 2016 class. Um, but yeah, do you see that there is a path for anybody in the House or the Senate um, to that potential pick? And I don't know. Like, how does that strike you as monumental in itself that you have that promise sort of being given before um, officially he has the nomination, Raven?
0: Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's definitely complicated. I mean, Harris at this moment just feels like this natural pick. But I do remember so much when she was running that there were all kinds of progressives who, you know, called her the cop and uh, were very upset with, with, with her professional
1: history. Yeah, I'll say sitting here, it's funny to me because I don't see her as the most natural pick, but I also think that the closer you are to people, the sometimes the, the more challenging it can be, you know?
0: Well, she's been a pretty outspoken voice um, in these last few weeks in ways um, that I think have really appealed to folks. But I think that... um it's funny because um, once you commit to a woman, you're creating, you're almost, you're raising and lowering expectations at the same time, right? It's like I, I, I'm not going to say I'm just going to pick the best person, and then and there's a woman. It's like I'm going to pick a woman, and therefore it may or may not be the most qualified person. You're sort of almost framing women as this as this other group that may or may not um, actually be the best pick, if I'm making any sense. So it, it sort of, in a way, sort of denigrates the sentiment in some level, um, instead of just saying, I'm going to pick the, the person who I think can most uh, unite our country. And then, of course, having, you know, deciding that that was a woman. Having said that, there were a lot of people who were excited about that. I think he's pretty much held to that now. Um, and that's kind of hard to imagine that coming from the House. Um, it does feel like uh, the senator of the States is where that pick would be most sensible for him.
1: It, yeah, it is an interesting one. And it feels like it's just now fueling everybody's guessing game
0: <laughs> to a point.
1: That... Always.
0: And I think he said he's not going to even do it till August, right, or something.
1: Right. And and it's historically, it doesn't seem like it's been... The tipping point for most candidates, right? I mean, this is not, it's important, but it's not necessarily going to win or lose you the election.
0: Yeah. Although I will remind everybody that the true progenitor to Trump that we forget about a lot, Sarah Palin, did, uh, you know, spark up his ticket for a while. So it can make a difference.
1: Yeah. And I think given Joe Biden's age, there are a lot of questions about, you know, what, what this means. It's not just a VP pick. It's sort of an anointing, an ex-leader of the party. Um, okay, we have just a few minutes left. I do have another audience question um, asking, how can we as citizens combat harassment and ad hominem disinformation campaigns targeted at women in Congress, uh, she notes the squad, to ensure the safety of these and future female elected officials? Um, I don't know if you can answer that, Jennifer, but I do think it's an interesting topic because there's a lot in this book about, you know, some of that harassment, whether it be after they visited a a border facility, being actually confronted by protesters as they tried to have a press conference. Obviously, um, we know that Twitter can be quite a sewer for anybody, especially women. But (laughs) what are your thoughts on that?
0: Well, yeah, I mean, I was going to say, talk to Mark Zuckerberg about that. I mean, I know it's a cliche at this point, but it's absolutely impossible to overstate the role that these platforms have had. Um, particularly you you mentioned disinformation, government has had an uneasy relationship with these platforms and that's understandable. And there are all kinds of different views on that in the left and the right, but without, without any, some sort of, uh, commitment from the Twitters and the Facebook executives, of the world, this is going to be the harassment, the disinformation, um, uh, the infiltration of foreign governments in our, in our elections is gonna, I have to say, be really hard to curb.
1: All right, we have about a minute left and um, we have your hardest question yet, which is we always like to ask everybody, what is your 60 second idea to change the world? You know, this is a weird answer and you
0: probably won't even find it that interesting. But I think that, um, I think that what I would say to my kids a lot is try to change careers a lot I think people need to change what they're doing in their lives and change the spaces that they're in and maybe even the physical places that they are and to try and get a broad perspective, to try and have associations, friendships, even if not friendships, interactions with people you don't agree with people from all parts of the spectrum. We all kind of live in our own geographic bubbles at this point. Um, And to try to take yourself out of that and to kind of know as many, uh, interact with has made different types of people to really understand where people are coming from. Um, I talked to a voter today, um, in the military who voted for Trump in 2016 because she wasn't interested in politics and she only decided to engage when she saw that some of her colleagues were upset about it and to start to really try to learn, understand. She didn't know anything about it because she didn't pay attention. So people uh, malign people for um, motivations and intentions, which may just stem from the fact that they're actually not they're living their lives and they're not as engaged as you are. So, I think just I think more
1: interaction, not less with our fellow Americans actually is was my idea. That is probably a very apt thing to say in this moment as we talk about our our very complicated history and our need to kind of bridge it. Jennifer Steinhauer, thank you so much for joining us for INFORM today at the Commonwealth Club. Thank you. It was such an honor to be with you. I appreciate it. We'd like to remind our audience that copies of Jennifer's book, The First, The Inside Story of the Women Reshaping Congress, are available for purchase. And if you'd like to watch more virtual programs or programming, please visit commonwealthclub.org give.